Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. My name is Blake Jennings. If I haven't met you yet, I'm the teaching pastor over at our Southwood campus. I was sitting in the back during worship, and then I came to the front, and I noticed it's about five degrees cooler on the front two rows. So those of you in the back, if you get hot, you just come right up here. Really, I, I think these, these are the best seats in the house. You guys are sitting in the cheap seats back there. So this morning you can turn to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to continue our study of the big ideas of the Bible by talking about the Bible this morning. We're going to talk about Scripture as we continue our survey of theology. Now, my sermon this morning is going to begin with an assumption I am assuming that you wish you spent more time in the Bible than you actually do. That's actually a pretty safe assumption. 2013 Barna poll of a whole bunch of Americans found that two-thirds of Americans wish they spent more time in the Bible than they actually do. And of the third who don't, more than half of them don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. So it's actually a really small sliver of people who have a high view of the Bible, and who spend as much time in the Bible as they know that they should. And if that describes you, then you are awesome, and this sermon's not for you. So this sermon's just the icing on your cake. We are all in awe of you, because most of us struggle to find the time to spend in the Word of God that we know we should. We have a high view of it, like most Americans, but we're just so busy There's so much to do between school and work and taking care of the kids and shopping for groceries and taking care of the lawn. There's there's just always so much to do that we can never find the time to spend in the Bible because we're just too busy. But here is a, a principle, a little proverb of life that I have learned over the years. You will always find the time to do what you value most. I learned that the first year of my marriage. I was still in seminary taking a bunch of classes. So I had to read a lot of books and write a lot of papers. And there were evenings when I had no time for anything except writing as fast as I could. So I didn't have time to do the dishes or call my parents or watch TV. All I could do was write. But if Julie was to come over to me at my desk and wink at me and say, hey, sweetie, you want to have some fun tonight if you know what I mean? Well, I would have taken a C on that paper. Because you always find the time to do what you value most. And so the reason that we're not spending the time in Scripture that we know we should, it's not because we're too busy. It's because we don't value spending time in Scripture as much as we value spending time doing whatever else we're doing. You are never too busy to do what you value most. So why didn't I spend enough time in Scripture yesterday? It's not because I was too busy, because somehow in the midst of my busyness, I found time to update my status on Facebook and watch that new show and and relax and call my parents. I, I had time to do the stuff that I valued more than spending time in Scripture. So if we're going to grow the time that we spend in the Bible, we need to grow our appreciation of the Bible. We, we need to see more clearly why Scripture is worth our time and our devotion. So this morning, what I'd like to do for the first half of this message is I'd like to remind you why spending time in the Bible is the best place you can spend your time. 
I want to convince you that your Bible up on the shelf is the most valuable possession you have ever owned or will ever own. So let's jump right in. I'm going to give you four reasons why the Bible is worth your time. Reason number one is it is absolutely true. It's absolutely true. And if you think about it, there's really not much in this world that's absolutely true. Even things that claim to be absolutely true. Every news outlet claims to be your source of absolute, unfiltered, unbiased truth. And yet none of them are. Because every news outlet is run by people. And people lie and deceive and manipulate the facts to fit their own agenda. And even when people try to tell the truth, we're still human. So we make mistakes. You see that in the field of medicine all the time. So, so doctors study all the research that they can to give their patients the best advice possible, truest advice. And then 10 years pass and new research is done and it turns out, well, that wasn't very good advice, but you didn't have all the facts. And so if you want absolute truth, you've got to look beyond the human race. You've got to look to someone who is greater than us, someone who is never in error, Someone who is never deceived nor deceives. You've got to look to someone who's greater than us. You need to look for, for speech or for words from someone who is not susceptible to human fallibility. Well, that's what you have in Scripture. You are hearing words from someone who is greater than the human race. So look with me. 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're just going to look at the very beginning of verse 16. Just the first few words. Paul says all scripture, that is the Bible, is inspired by God. That phrase inspired by God, in Greek it literally literally reads God breathed. Scripture is God's words, God's speech directly to us. Now yes, men like Moses or Luke or Paul wrote the books of the Bible, but what this verse is telling us is God's Spirit worked in these men so that every word they wrote on the page was exactly the word God wanted there. Theologians call that the verbal inspiration of Scripture. Their point is that God's word extends to every single word in your Bible. And the result of verbal inspiration is found in the book of Psalm. That keeps jumping two slides. I don't know if you guys can fix that. Psalm 119. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. The truthfulness of Scripture. The the Bible is as true as God is true because it is his literal words. Theologians call the truthfulness of Scripture inerrancy. The Bible is without error. It is absolutely true and accurate and correct in, in everything that it teaches us, whether that's about theology or about morality or about history. It is completely true in every way. There is absolutely no error in it. And not only is the Bible absolutely true, but it is absolutely free of spin. Now we're in the midst of an election cycle. And so the airwaves are full of spin all the time because what do politicians do? They take the same set of facts. Everybody's working with the same set of facts and then they spin them to their own advantage to make themselves look good and their opponents look bad. That's how politics works. That's not how the Bible works. The book of Mark was, not surprisingly, written by a guy named Mark. But Mark wasn't around when Jesus was walking the earth. And so Mark got all of his stories from the apostle Peter. 
The book of Mark is Peter's story, kind of his biography of life with Jesus. And so Peter's telling Mark stories as Mark writes them down. And here's an interesting little story that gets included in the book of Mark chapter 8. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he that is Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest but man." This is a really bad day for Peter because he rebukes God because Jesus is God and then God rebukes him and calls him Satan. Here's the question for you. Why would Peter include this story in his biography? No politician would ever let this story out of the closet. No, they would never want you to know something so embarrassing. Why did Peter include it? Because the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, unabashedly tells us the greatest follies and greatest humiliations of its heroes. The Bible gives you the truth without spin. It's never covered up. It's never manipulated. It is the cold, hard fact of what happened. The Bible is the one and only place you can go in life to find absolute truth that is free of spin. So that's the first reason that it's worth your time. Second reason it's worth your time is the Bible has stood the test of time. We live in a, in a culture that you could call a, a next version culture. We have a society that is fixated on the next version of whatever you currently have. So the next version of your gadgets or your software or your entertainment or your car or fashion. We're, we're always fixated on what's coming next. Everything is always changing, even if it's just for the sake of change. Like I, I notice you probably have two skinny jeans on guys are back in style. I grew up in the 80s when skinny jeans were in Z-cab cheese and you rolled them on the end. And then we moved to the 90s and jeans got baggy and I really liked that a lot better. They were more comfortable. Now we're moving back towards skinny jeans. Not because they're better, because they aren't, but simply for the sake of change, because we live in a world that is constantly changing. Everything around you is changing. And so in the midst of that constant change, that constant flux, you need something that doesn't change to hold on to. You got to have an anchor in the sea of change you live in that stays in one place. And that's what scripture provides for you, an anchor that you can hold on to, something that is permanent and stable and trustworthy. It says to us in the book of Isaiah, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Stands forever. What that means is that there's never going to be a version 2.0 of this book. You're never going to get a little update message in the middle of the night that your software is out of date from the Lord. There's never going to be an update of this book because it was perfect the first time. God's not going to change anything here because it was his absolutely true, perfect, unchanging word the first time. Everything here will stay exactly as it is forever. Jesus tells us in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. When he says, uh, not the smallest letter, that probably makes sense. Stroke, what that is, is it's a little line that distinguishes one letter from another letter. So in English, it would be like that little line that distinguishes a capital R from a capital P. And Jesus' point is not even the smallest stroke of the smallest letter of God's word will pass away until all of it is fulfilled. It's not going anywhere. 
It is perfect and faithful and true and permanent. So you can count on it. Scripture is your anchor. In the midst of a world that is constantly changing around you, this is the one thing that you can cling to that will never change. Because this this book contains wisdom and truth that has been proven reliable for thousands of years in in every culture and in every situation. If, If this book was not reliable, if the truth here was not unchanging truth, then it would have passed away with all other ancient literature. Let me ask you, how many of you today are still following the Code of Hammurabi? Do any of you even know what the Code of Hammurabi is? It's the law of the Babylonian kings. And like the whole world fell under that law back when the Bible was written. But you don't even know what that is. Why? Because it was man-made. So it passed away long, long ago. But the Bible's not man-made. And so the Bible continues to be our source of of truth, our our source of answers to life's most difficult questions. You can continue to find them here today. That's why the Bible is actually the most translated book and most copied book in the history of the human race. There's billions of copies of this book. It's been translated into over 2,400 languages. It has had more impact than any other book in the history of the human race. Because it is God's unchanging, proven answers to life's most important questions. So this book, first two reasons why you should spend time in this book, because it is your source of absolute truth, and because it has proven to be God's unchanging, reliable answers to the questions of life. Third reason why this book is worth your time is because this book can lead us to salvation. That's really the most remarkable thing about the Bible. Think about it. Most books can just entertain you. Hopefully they entertain you or you wouldn't read them. Uh, Some books can inform you. The best books can make you wise, but only the Bible can actually save you. That's what Paul tells us. Look again at chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. Look at verse 15. From childhood you, that's Timothy, have known the sacred writings, that's Scripture, that's the Bible, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. This book leads us to faith in Jesus, and Paul tells us that's salvation. That's the good news of the gospel, that we can't earn heaven. We can't merit God's love, no matter how often we come to church, no matter how many good deeds we do or how much we give to the poor. You will never do enough good to earn God's love, but that's okay because he offers it for free. It's a gift that you can have for free because Jesus earned it for you. That's the good news of faith in Jesus. Jesus, God's son, came and died in your place for your sins and then rose from the dead to conquer sin and death for you so that you could have forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift. And all you have to do is say to God, yes, I'd like that. Yes, I want that gift. God, I believe that you are giving me eternal life as a free gift earned through Jesus' death and resurrection for me. If you haven't yet gotten to that place in your life, where you are willing to receive that gift, just receive eternal life as a free gift Jesus earned for you. If there's something holding you back, it's just too hard to believe in Jesus or, or you don't get it. It doesn't make sense that God would give it to you for free. If there's something holding you back, then I would encourage you, just read this book. Th- this will save you. You don't need me. You don't need anybody else here. You need this book. Particularly start with Gospel of John and the book of Romans. Those two books in particular, you read those books, they can lead you to eternal life. 
That's the third reason why this book is worth your time. It can save you. Fourth reason this book is worth your time is because it equips us for life. It's tragic to me that so many people in our society look at this book as irrelevant, as outdated. It's a bunch of old stories and complex theology that has nothing to say to our modern lives. That couldn't be further from the truth. Actually, everything that you really want to know in this life is answered in this book. Do you want to know how to be free of shame and guilt? Of course you do. Everyone wants that. The answer is right here in the pages of this book. Do you want to know how to have a good marriage and raise good kids? Of course you do. The answer is right here in this book. Do you want to know what to do with your money and how to relate to the government? It's right here in this book. Even current events. Remember when the gorilla was shot about a month ago? How are you to think about that situation? This book will tell you. Read Genesis 1 and 2 and Psalm 8. It will give you a grid through which to look at that current event. This book speaks to everything that you need to know in life. Look again at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Start again in verse 16. Paul says, All scripture is inspired, that is, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You notice there, every good work, not not some good works, not most good works, every good work, everything good that God is calling you to do in this life, you will find out how in this book. Now, you know this already. This book doesn't give you the details. So it's not going to tell you what mutual fund to put your money in or how to pass your chemistry exam. It doesn't give you the details. It gives you the principles. So an example, for those of you who are single, you probably wish that there was a verse in this book that gave you the name of the person you should marry. I wished that when I was single. The book doesn't do that. What it does instead is it tells you the right kind of person to marry. And it tells you the kind of person not to marry. It gives you the principles that you need. So you study those principles and then you look out and you notice, hey, there are three people in my life that all fit the qualities that the Bible tells me. These are the kind of people that I should marry. Then God is saying, okay, pick any of the three. Meet the biblical qualifications so you'll be good. The Bible gives you the principles that you need to live the good life God has called you to live. It equips you for everything good that God has called you to do in this life. It tells us in Psalm 119, you may notice we're going to look a lot at Psalm 119. It's all about scripture. It tells us your commandments make me wiser than my enemies for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meditation. They make me wise. It, for those of you who are going to A&M or, or, or studying to go to A&M, it's good to go to A&M and, and get a degree and learn stuff. It is better to know this book because this book can actually make you wiser than any of your professors on campus. This book is your source of true life-changing wisdom. They can give you facts. They can give you details. Only this book can make you wise. So it can make you wise so that you can live a skillful life. It also tells us in Psalm 119 that it can give you strength against temptation. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. The the Bible is your defense. As as you study and read and memorize this book and let it sink in, it, it gives you protection and a shield against temptation and sin. 
you remember that story where Jesus was led out into the wilderness and tempted by Satan? The three times Satan tempted him. What did Jesus do all three times? He quoted scripture. Book of Deuteronomy, actually. Now, that's interesting when you think about it because Jesus, remember, he's God. So he could have literally just punched Satan in the face, right? Why didn't he? Well, because he wanted to set an example for you and me. You want to know how to stand up against temptation? You want to know how to stand up against the schemes of the evil one? Read this book. Let it sink in deep inside, memorize it, and then when temptation comes, you will have ammunition to use against it. This book equips you for everything that you need in this life. So why should we spend time in the Bible? We have so many other things that we could do. So many distractions out there. So many things we can do with our time. Why is this book worth it? Because this book is the only place you can go in life to find absolute, unchanging truth that can save you and equip you for everything good you need. So I I just want to unabashedly, very clearly challenge you to find a way to spend time every day in this book. You have the time. You really do. It's a question of value. Do you value this book highly enough to set aside time every day to read it? It's the most valuable possession you will ever own. But I have found over the years that as people spend more time in this book, it raises questions that can become a stumbling block if if they don't get answers. And so I thought that with the second half of the time that I have this morning, I would like to answer for you the five most common questions that people have asked me over the years about this book. So they start to study the Word of God. It raises questions. We're going to tackle some of those questions this morning. So the first most frequent question that I get from people when they start spending time in the Bible, they come to me and they say, Blake, we do not have the original manuscripts of the Bible, so how do we know that our Bibles are accurate? That's actually a really good question because we don't have the original manuscripts. There is no letter, no parchment in a museum that Paul wrote that you can go look at. There's no stone tablets from Moses that you can go look at. We don't have the originals. We only have copies. What I want you to know is that that's actually true of almost all ancient literature. We don't have any original copies of Plato. We don't have any original copies of Aristotle. We don't even have any original copies of Shakespeare. Did you know that? Not a single play or sonnet or word written by Shakespeare himself. All we have is copies. That's true of almost all ancient literature. So what scholars do to determine the accuracy and reliability of our copies is they gather all the ancient copies that they can. And the more copies that they find from the ancient world, the more reliable or trustworthy our copies. And and the closer in time the copies are to the originals, in other words, less time that's passed, the more reliable our copies are. And the better that the copies agree with each other, the more reliable our copies are. So how does the New Testament, let's just focus on that because that's the one that talks about Jesus. How does the New Testament stack up against other ancient literature? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Here's a little chart. It's going to be a little overwhelming. That's the idea. I want it to overwhelm you. I want to give you a sense, an order of magnitude 
of how the New Testament stacks up against other ancient literature. The size of the yellow circle represents the number of ancient manuscripts that we have. And the distance between the edge of the yellow circle and the black dot at the center of the screen represents how much time passed between the original being written and the most ancient copy that we can go look at in a museum today. And so what I want you to see is that the New Testament, the big circle on the left, blows all other ancient literature out of the water. So just look at number of copies. We have seven ancient copies of Plato. We have 49 ancient copies of Aristotle, 643 of Homer's Iliad, 24,000 ancient copies of the New Testament. Now, how much time passed between the original and a copy that we have? Well, for Homer and the Iliad, 500 years between Homer and the most ancient copy we can go look at today. For Plato, 1,200 years passed. For Aristotle, 1,400 years. For the Bible, 40 to 70 years. That's all. We actually have pieces of parchment. You can go look at them today that were written within 100 years of Jesus walking the earth. We have the entire New Testament, just like your New Testament, in museums today from about 300 years after Jesus. So the New Testament blows all of these other ancient works out of the water in in terms of how many copies we have and how ancient they are. But then let's take these 24,000 copies and let's begin to compare them, lay them on top of each other. Where do the words line up? What we find is that the words line up perfectly 99% of the time. 99% of the text, the word is always in the same place, same word. 1% varies, but the majority of that 1% is spelling differences because they spelled certain words differently in different parts of the ancient world. And so it's actually an incredibly tiny sliver of 1% of meaningful differences between copies that blows everything else in the ancient world away. The whole point of walking you through this overwhelming chart is is to help you believe that the Bible in your hands is an absolutely reliable and accurate copy of what Paul and Luke and Moses wrote. You can trust in it. Now, we don't have the original manuscripts, but we do have the Word of God. That's the first question people will ask me. Second question, which kind of flows out of that, is, okay, well, we have all these copies, and then we translate into English, because most of us can't speak Hebrew or Greek. So what translation in English should we use? Well, I want you first to think for a moment about how incredibly lucky you are to be able to ask that question. Because there's nations and people groups that do not have one translation in their own language. We have dozens. So which one should you use? Any of them. I recommend people use newer ones, so ones that are from the last 30 years. That's based on the best research that we have, because there's been a lot of research done in the last 30 years. I like NASB, ESV, NIV, NET, NRSV. I'll use them all. I use them interchangeably. You'll see different ones in my sermons. I actually recommend that people have a couple different translations, so that as you're reading a passage, you can read it in one translation and then another and get a better sense of it. It'll also keep it fresh for you and help you to really enjoy your time in the Word. So a common one, ones to kind of connect are one that's real word for word, like the NASB. It's a little more wooden, but you really are getting word for word. And then something like the NIV that's more phrase by phrase. Have those two, read them together. It's so helpful. It'll keep the Word of God fresh and help you to understand it. Third question that I will often get from people, why do we have these 66 books in our Bible and not others? Old Testament, New Testament, you got 66 books. 
But if you go and walk the shelves at Barnes & Noble, particularly the religion section, you will see a lot of books on the shelf that are designed to convince you that your Bible is incomplete. These books claim that the early leaders of the church threw out some books that did not line up with their theology and their political agenda. Books that should be included back into the Bible, like the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Thomas, the Apocrypha. These books claim that you are missing them and that they're part of Scripture. Here's what I want you to know. Here's the general principle. The Bible, the New Testament that you have, was never bigger than it is now. It actually started much smaller, much, much smaller. For Jesus and the apostles, what was their Bible? Just the Old Testament. The 39 books of the Old Testament, the Jews had settled it by the time Jesus came, and the church received the Old Testament without question. So that was settled. But then it took a while to write the New Testament, and it took even longer, decades, to copy it and distribute it throughout the Roman Empire. Because remember, they lived in an era before the Internet and before FedEx. It was really hard. It was expensive to write things. It's expensive to copy things. It took a lot of time to distribute all these letters. So we look back into the history of the church, and what we find is that in the decades after the apostles, it took a while, but gradually the letters of the New Testament got copied and disseminated throughout the churches, and some of those letters were immediately received by every church as Scripture equivalent to the Old Testament. And that includes the four Gospels, the book of Acts, and the letters of Paul. Those are called the undisputed books. The church just received those immediately. But there were other books that took longer to decide. Is this scripture? And books included in that list would, would include the book of Hebrews. Hebrews has a problem. Anybody know what it is? Problem with the book of Hebrews. No author. No author is named. So a lot of the early churches, they looked at that and they said, ah, what, what do we do with that? Can we call this scripture if the author doesn't identify himself? So they wrestled with Hebrews for a while. They wrestled with Revelation. Because that book's crazy. Everybody struggles to understand Revelation, so that took a while. So in the first few hundred years of the church, their New Testament was much smaller. There were no books in their New Testament that are not in yours. Instead, it was the opposite. They didn't have all the books that are in yours. Because it just took time and it took debates. And the deal is, in the first few hundred years of the church, they were a persecuted church. So they couldn't get everybody together in the same room to discuss what should the books of the New Testament be. Because if everybody got together in the same room, they would be arrested and executed. But that changed. In the mid-300s, the Roman Empire accepted Christianity, and for the first time in our history, all the pastors were allowed to get in the same room. And they literally did. They got together and they debated, and finally they authorized, they stamped the New Testament as you have it. No books have been left out. It wasn't until the mid-300s that finally they had all the books that you have. So, the New Testament, the Bible was always smaller than your Bible. It took time for the church to arrive at all the 66 books you have. You're not missing anything. You have the 66 books you have because God in his sovereignty led the early church to receive these 66 as scripture. Fourth question that I'll often get from people. Are we really supposed to take this book literally? Question usually doesn't come like that. Usually it comes, hey Blake, what do we do about Jonah and the fish? Because it's really hard to believe that a guy lived for three days in the belly of a fish. What fish could a guy possibly live in? So surely, Blake, that, that's got to be myth. That's got to be legend, right? Here's the problem. If you're going to begin to declare one part of Scripture to be myth, where do you stop? 
If you can't get to the place where you believe that a guy lived for three days in a fish, then why do you believe a guy rose from the dead after three days in a tomb? When you begin to to declare certain parts of the Bible to be man-made, to be myth, to be legend, that's a slippery slope. It's not long before you will begin to throw out everything you find hard and uncomfortable. That's hard theology like the Trinity or uncomfortable teachings like hell or what the Bible says about homosexuality. You begin to, on this slippery slope, and and you can't stop. So what we found historically is that we must cling to the Bible as all, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation. It is all absolutely true from God. We cannot begin to dismiss even the smallest part to be legend or myth. So what do I do with the story of Jonah and the fish? Well, I, I don't know whether a human being could actually survive three days in the belly of any fish on earth that's here now. Maybe. There's legends. Maybe. Maybe. But what I do know is that there's a creator who made the universe with one word. And so he very easily could have created one really, really big fish just for Jonah that never existed before Jonah and has never existed after Jonah. God, with a word, could have created a mile-long fish with a 5,000-square-foot air-conditioned penthouse in it just for Jonah, because God can do that. What I know is that at the end of the day, you must choose whether or not you're going to stand in judgment over Scripture, deciding what of it is true and what of it is not, or kneel in submission before Scripture and accept all of it is true, even though there's a lot of it you don't understand. The first option leads to an empty, man-made religion. The second option gives you an anchor you can cling to, even though you don't fully understand it. And so I'd encourage you, cling to the whole Bible. Yeah, there's a lot I can't explain. There's a lot I don't understand. But I believe that it's all the Word of God. Because as soon as you get on that slippery slope, There's no place you'll end. So that's the fourth question I'll often get. As the men go back to prepare communion, let's talk about the last question. Fifth question that I'll often get. How do we understand the Bible? Because it's confusing. It was written a long time ago to people who are very different than us. How do you understand what you're reading in Scripture? I just gave you here five quick principles, five quick things to help you to better understand the Bible when you read it. The first thing is I would encourage you to pray for insight. If this is God's words, then you probably need God's help to understand them. So anytime you open the Bible, pray and ask God's spirit to speak to you. God's spirit fills all believers. He can interpret God's words to you and explain them to you. And so pray that the spirit would give you insight into God's word. Second, read a passage multiple times in multiple translations. Sometimes it just takes a while to sink in. So read it and then Read it again, and then read it again, and then grab your other translation and read it in that translation. Who knows? Maybe the NIV will click with you today. Maybe the ESV will click with you the next day. So read it multiple times in multiple translations, and then get some help. Grab a commentary. My favorite commentary that you buy and put on the shelf, if you like print versions, is called the Bible Knowledge Commentary. There's one version for the Old Testament, one version for the New Testament. It's very easy to engage with. It explains verse by verse. If you're more into free stuff, then go to this website, lumina.bible.org. It's an incredible resource put out by a bunch of guys associated with Dallas Theological Seminary. It's got, you you go and type in any passage, like Matthew 3, and it'll pull up the passage, and there's all these hyperlinks on, on all these words. And then on the right side of the page, it gives you tons of notes. 
to better understand what you're reading. It's even got commentaries for free. There's a, a professor of Christian mind named Dr. Tom Constable who wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible and decided rather than publishing it and making money, he would just give them all away. So they're free. You go online and all these free commentaries are there for you for every book of the Bible and it'll walk you through and help you to understand what you're reading. So incredible resource and it's free. My fourth piece of advice is to join a group. We're not meant to study the word of God in isolation. Now, it's good to study it when you're alone, but then you should gather with other people and discuss it. And so you really need to be in some kind of small group, whether that's a home church or, or a small group Bible study or an adult men's or women's Bible study, whatever it is. Um, if you're not connected into a small group, I encourage you to talk to Chris, talk to Matt, or go onto the website. If you just click connect, all of the groups are listed there, but you need a group that you, that you study it with. Finally, I would encourage you as you read to remember, ultimately, everything that we read in Scripture is about Jesus. So the Old Testament points forward, tells us who's coming. The New Testament points back, tells us who came. So it's really, it's, it's all about Jesus. So when I'm reading a passage and struggling with it, I try to ask myself, what is this telling me about Jesus? Even if the passage is not directly about Jesus, somehow it's preparing me to better understand who Jesus is and what he would do. So ultimately, the whole Bible is about Jesus, and fittingly, that's how we're going to end our service this morning. We're going to think a little bit and remember a little bit about Jesus by taking communion. So communion is where we as a family, as a group, we remember what Jesus did on the cross. Communion is our celebration that Jesus really did give his body and his blood for us. It was his willing choice, but he sacrificed himself for us to pay for our sins. And so as the men, as you guys come forward, if you'll come forward, as the elements pass, what I'd ask you to do during this time is to go before the Lord in prayer and give thanks. That's what this moment is about. Just thank God for sending his son. Thank him for giving us grace. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you were willing to send him on our behalf, and we praise you and thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to suffer and die for us. You did not deserve that. You lived a perfect life. You did nothing but good all the days of your life. You deserved life. You deserved glory. And yet, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to suffer and be beaten and crucified so that we could be forgiven. We thank you for purchasing life for us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you offer us that gift for free. We praise you and we thank you that we don't have to work for salvation. We thank you that it comes to us simply through faith. We pray, Lord, that we would, now that we've received your gift of salvation, that we would receive your word as the gift that it is. We confess that though we have the most valuable thing the world has ever possessed on our shelves, we so often don't spend time in it. We pray that you would forgive us of that. We pray that you would grow our love for Scripture. 
We pray that we would love it more than anything else, anything on TV, any other book, any other activity. We pray that you would stir within our souls a deep and abiding passion to know your word. And we pray that not only would we read your word, but that we would memorize it, that it would become part of us. We pray that by your word becoming part of us, that we would live lives that please you and your son, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Now, if you'll stand, we're going to respond together in worship.